Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. In this episode, we welcome Michael. Michael is from Boston, Massachusetts, and is a teacher of children with disabilities. Please welcome Michael. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the pod. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. We're great to have you. So why don't we start off by telling you telling us your name, your preferred pronouns, and just a little bit about yourself. So my name is Michael Hauser. I go by he or him. Um, I'm originally from this state. I, I grew up in Waltham. I am currently 57 years old. And I just celebrated uh, 17 years of sobriety. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. That's amazing. I actually live in Belmont, which is one town over from Waltham. So where in Waltham did you grow up? So I grew up right kind of in west, the west part of Waltham. It was near like the vocational tech school, Central Junior High School. Yeah, not a not a not a glamorous part of the city, but uh... <laughs> that's true. But hey, I know I know it well, so that's funny. You're like you're a local. So, all right. So now um, we're just gonna go through your sobriety journey. Journey. What you're gonna do is you're gonna start us off with the first time you uh, drank or used, and just kind of take us up all the way up till now. Sure. So I was very much a late bloomer when it came to drinking because. Because I was gay, I was very like isolated back back when I was gay. It, you could, it was actually uh, acceptable to ostracize somebody for being gay. Like you could, you were actually given support or even you know heralded for for being abusive towards uh, like other gay people in your school or in the workplace. So I didn't have my first drink till I was like twenty because I didn't have any kind of a social network where I could actually get my hands on any alcohol. Mm-hmm. And my life changed overnight because I always suffered from social anxiety. I didn't have a lot of commonality with other people. And alcohol really built a bridge. I went from being completely isolated and, and kind of having a dark existence to being able to connect with a myriad of different people because drinking and drug use brings people together. I mean, it's a, you know, it gives, it gives you, it gives people a sense of unity, even if they come from different walks of life or if they have nothing in common. And so um, I stayed in the closet all through my twenties in the seventies and eighties. It was pretty awful being gay, especially with, the AIDS crisis, I felt like it wasn't safe. I would not be accepted. People could tell that I was gay, but I I wouldn't experiment with other people. I wouldn't be a part of it because of you were vilified for it. And I didn't start being engaging in gay relationships and going to clubs until I was in my 30s. So most people start to settle down in their 30s. My alcohol and drug use really went into maximum overdrive in the 30s. Um, I was working in human services, but just kept working in restaurants because it was fast money and mm-hmm. I could go out every night of the week and I could sleep until four, you know, 4 p.m. if I wanted to the next day, you know, uh, fourth went through four and five jobs a year, started getting arrested for DUIs 
my health really went downhill, started experiencing <clears throat> mental health, medical issues. And um, the last time I drank when I was 40, I, I slammed into a parked car because I put my car in drive instead of reverse and was so blasted. And then I fled the scene and I got arrested for that. And they said, look, you've got a checkered past here one more time, buddy, and you're going to jail. Mm -hmm. So it was at that point I came into AA, but not until I was 40 years old and not <clears throat> until I had had like a heart attack, a contracted HIV during a crystal meth blackout, mm -hmm. um, had more legal cases than I could count. Um, yeah, so it was, I was kind of a mess by the time I got sober. Yeah. Wow. So that, that accident, it was, that was kind of your rock bottom. That's where it kind of started to turn around for you. Yes. I had multiple rock bottoms between, between my heart attack, my HIV, more jobs that I could count. All I wouldn't be done one legal case before a new one would start off. And they were always alcohol and drug, even me, either me driving around crazy or making threatening phone calls or getting into fist fights. I hit a police officer once, like almost, almost anything could happen when I was under the influence. I would really transform into an unrecognizable person. But I love that. That was part of my identity. In, in my eyes, I was a rebel, which really I wasn't. I was a, a, a broken down, crazy ass, you know, loser who couldn't hold his life together. But yeah. So when you first started drinking, was there a kind of a light bulb moment from the very beginning that it was going to be a problem? Or was it kind of just social and fun at first? I became an alcoholic right away. And people had pointed out that to me. They're like, look, you really seem to be crossing the path really the bridge really quickly from being a social drinker to an alcoholic. I, I knew from the get-go I had a problem because everybody told me I didn't care. I remember what my life was like before alcohol and drugs. It was completely bored. It was sad. It was depressing. And I was not going to go back there. I would rather take on all of the risks, accidents, and arrest that came along with drinking than to go back to being a one-man show as a sober person because that was a torturous experience. Um, yeah. And then your drinking led into the drugs. Uh, was it through uh, the club scene? Was it through parties? Was it through a certain individual that introduced you? How did you kind of switch from drinking to drugs? So even now, I wouldn't know how to get drugs because I was never very street smart. But um, usually in the clubs, in the bathroom, people started giving me stuff. I don't even know what I was using half the time. A couple of times I, I would go to parties with people I met at the clubs and bars. I wouldn't even know who they were or where I was going. And there would be drugs there. There was a man I was uh, having relationships with towards the end who introduced me to Coke. So Coke and crack were the two primary drugs. I didn't start using them, though, until the like the last two years of my substance abuse, because drinking was really boring at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, sex with Coke and crack was right on. I mean, after that, I didn't want to have sex without it. I only used crystal meth twice at a bathhouse at the Providence Megaplex. I used to go there every time I got wasted. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the two times I contracted HIV. I never worried about catching HIV because I didn't like frankly anal sex i'm like i have nothing to worry about and yeah it just shows you how dangerous that drug is one one night of that can do something that will you know alter your life forever Absolutely. but i still kept using even after that i'm like well what else could happen that you know i've already hit rock bottom with my diagnosis i might as well just keep going i mean nothing else 
<clears throat> bad could be could be worse that could be you know happen to me after that which wasn't really true you know? so like once you um kind of finally hit the final rock bottom did you go into treatment did you just quit cold turkey what was your kind of catalyst and what was your um waves of starting your sober journey so at that point, uh, you know, I went from having my own apartment to living with roommates to living on someone's couch. You know, I was always paying something, but my living arrangements kept getting worse and worse. I feel like, too, once you start really indulging in alcohol and drug abuse, the people that you live with uh, or surround yourself with really contribute to your deterioration. Like you're usually with other kind of alcohol and drug users. You also attract abusive people as well. You start getting into one abusive relationship into another. And the people I was with at that point did not uh, did not support my quest uh, to get sober because that took me away from what they were doing. Plus, they didn't want to see me getting myself together when they obviously weren't. And so I had to relocate as well. I was living in North Attleboro at the time. Very cheap to live there but not, not not a supportive gay community to speak of. So when I came to AA, when I was 40, I started going to Boston meetings and I was very blessed to meet somebody uh, at, the, at the meeting there, Tim, who was looking for a roommate. And then I moved in with Tim and I was able to leave the suburbs and go into the city. So that was a big step forward. Yeah, definitely AA was the thing that really kind of brought me out of uh, the life I was living into a healthier environment. That's amazing. So besides AA, um, what are some of the tools of your sobriety toolbox? Do you do other things like journaling? Do you do therapy? Do you listen to podcasts? What's your, what's your, um, what are the tools in your, in your sobriety toolbox? Yeah, I always have multiple. I feel like it's important to do many things at once. And I think therapy I've been using since I was 20, but I mean, my therapist was telling me every step of the way since I was 20, that I was an alcoholic. And you know, he they're very helpful with other issues that you have, whether it be depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, PTSD, that kind of stuff. I feel like for substance abuse, it's really important to be a part of a community. So AA also at the Shambhala Center in Brookline, they have Buddhist support systems for people in recovery. So it's not technically an AA you know group. It's not technically a religious group. It's Buddhism and and support for addicts. And I feel like that's a delicate balance for people who maybe are a little frustrated with the rules and regulations of like churches, and but don't also can't always fit under the umbrella of AA as well. There's plenty of people like that who are maybe have conflicts with the churches, conflicts with the program, but need a spiritual community support for their addictions. Yeah. Very much so. So that sounds great. Yeah, I'm always I'm always interested in some of the like I'm all of all the different ways that people kind of cope with sobriety because I know AA and NA is big, but listen, that sounds like a really good alternative for people who won't really connect with the AA system. So that's great. I like that. Yeah. Um, so who is your biggest supporter right now? Who is like your rock? Who's the person you turn to? Well, that's it. So um i you know really like my higher power is definitely the one that i kind of go to like every morning that's the first thing i do is go through my gratitude list with my higher power because prior to coming into the program i was so laser focused on what i didn't have and the voids in my life and could not you know really grasp you know the fact that i did have some, some things in my life to be grateful for because i just focused on what i didn't 
And I think in my youth, my idea of God was, well, I need this and I need that. And can you give me this? And can you give me that? Mm -hmm. Going through like the program really kind of showed me how to use a higher power as a source of inspiration and a companion and someone to kind of ask their will for. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a healthier relationship because if you use God as a genie or as a, you know, a celestial Santa, and then Mm -hmm. you don't get what you want, it really kind of like, it, it really makes you kind of turn your back on God, you know, mm-hmm. and my sponsor, David, David Goldman is so awesome. I have an aversion to men in general, you know, because I have so many issues interrelating with them. Straight men, I always feel like, oh, there's always a little bit of homophobia there. Yeah. And, and gay men, I'm like, oh, they can be so cliquish and superficial and, and fickle. And so men in general, I didn't connect with. So he's been, he's been great. He's a straight man which is for me to have a straight sponsor. Never did that before. He's Mm -hmm. very centered and we're not like lovey-dovey best friends. He's really just a sub and that works well for me too. When I'd have a gay sponsor, we'd have these intense highs, intense lows, and there would be certain amount of expectations that I would be putting on him to be more than a sponsor, but to, you know, to be like this, life powerhouse mentor taking me yeah. through everything after all these years i i really can't be relying on that anymore no. mm-hmm. that's great so yeah that's it's interesting how we kind of like you you think you connect with a gay man to be your sponsor but when it's a little bit more straight to the point a little bit more matter of fact with your sobriety i think that can be helpful for a lot of people too just yes get down to it right yes but i think when in your sobriety who, who your support system is where you live and where you work. I think those are the three most important things to hold it all together. If even one of those is off kilter, I feel like your program can really slide. Instead of showing up in a meeting talking about your sobriety and the breakthroughs, you're you're at the meeting talking about your conflicts with your boss or your conflicts with your roommate or your conflicts with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And so I feel like that can really take you off course. So yeah. I'm very blessed right now, all three of them. I did get a really great teaching position at the Franciscan School for Kids with Disabilities. And where I live now, the the man I live with, Jack Benzer, he's like an older gay man. So he's different though. I mean, he is gay, usually like, uh-oh, another gay man. But he's, <laughs> he's, you know, he's very supportive and he's very kind. He is also my landlord, but I actually look forward to being home with him when he's there because he's so kind and respectful. And I feel like a lot of people in the program can't always afford their own place and being living with people who are not supportive of sobriety Mm -hmm. or just not maybe respectful in general. I feel like that takes the focus off of your program as well. So very much so. Absolutely. So now that you are sober, what are some of the some plans and goals that emerge in your life once you put down uh, using? So, yeah, I think that, you know, when I was drinking and, and using my whole life was just trying to deal with the chaos that I had brought upon myself and others. And I think um, I really worked on transforming myself mentally, physically and spiritually. That seems to be going really well. You know, so most people, as they get older, like, oh, I looked so much better when I was younger. Now I'm fat. I actually look better at 57 than I did when I was 40, not because I look great now, but because I was such a mess. And I feel like the older we get, we we have to be much more aggressive about 
taking care of our bodies, taking care of our skin. I think too, like the meditation and the prayer and reading like self-help books and being a part of Buddhism and, and uh, AA, I think that helps mentally and spiritually as well. Uh, one of the, the two biggest disappointments is I have not found a life partner and I have not had an opportunity to adopt children. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when you're in long-term sobriety, you kind of in the back of my, your mind there's some expectations there. I'm going to get a house. I'm going to get a husband. I'm like, and when those don't happen, those can be, you know, kind of a disappointment. So, yeah. So I'm lucky to have a, be in a career where I get to work with children because I do kind of um, that kind of, that did leave a void in my life that I didn't accomplish that in my sobriety. You know? Yeah. It's also never too late. You know, it's you never yes. too late. open mind, open mind for sure. I mean, I, I feel the same way too. There's a certain level of expectation um, just being, you know, humans of picket fence, husband, kids. And, you know, sometimes it just takes a little bit longer than you would have expected. But I look back too, and I realize that like my entire twenties were just wasted on drinking and using. So it's like, I am starting a new life. You know, when I got sober, it really is like a new beginning and the possibilities can be endless. Well, optimism for you. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd be, I'd think making peace with my past has really been challenging as well. I grew up in an, an abusive, abusive family. Mm -hmm. And even in sobriety, I kept getting trapped in abusive relationships. People would ask me like, why you're sober now? Why are you still getting these abusive? I feel like if you're programmed with that, the being to be accept that kind of environment, even after you put the alcohol and drugs down, you might still find yourself getting mixed up with groups or partners who mistreat you because that's what you think is normal. That's what you think you. So trying to let go of like the anger and bitterness of previous decades, uh, I think that's another big focus of mine as well, because that puts a wall between me and my higher power and in kind of enjoying my sobriety. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And breaking that cycle is really, really hard because you're right. You have raised in that scenario. You're raised in that situation that you feel like it's normal. So you have to like retrain yourself to realize that that isn't normal and that isn't what you know you deserve. So that's a tough yeah. one for sure. Yes. Um, if you could if you could give one piece of advice to a newly sober person, what would it be? I guess to never really let anyone else define you or your sobriety. When I first came into the program, I had one success after another because I did get sober on my first try, which I'm honestly didn't have it. You know, I got, I published a novel that got great reviews. I got lots of weight off, like all of the things that you really were. And I couldn't give myself credit for that because my whole identity was based on how I saw my reflection in other people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't surrounding myself with respectful or supportive people, I couldn't give myself credit for what I was doing. You know, the only relationship that will last to the very end is you and your higher power. All your other relationships will eventually come to mm -hmm. an end one way or another. And if you base your happiness and your sobriety on the thoughts and opinions of other people, your sobriety will be this endless roller coaster ride that'll really do a number on you. But it took me so long to get that. I didn't, I wasn't really mature enough or centered enough to really see that for a very long time. Yeah, that's for sure. That's a really good, that's great advice. Um, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is dealing with a loved one who is currently in active addiction? So I've dealt that with that as well. Someone who comes from a strong human services background, because I have been a case manager at a detox as well, and someone who with long-term sobriety, you know, I would get it in my head. 
I'm just the right person to come in here and save the day. And really, they resent that so much. You have no idea that really makes them hate you that you that you think you can kind of swoop in there and save them. A lot of times they will resent the input you're giving them and the efforts that you're making to guide them. I think you can make it clear to someone that you will give them unconditional love and support, but you really can't solicit. You really have to kind of let them come to you. And then in the end, it's really up to them because I think what would happen, it was they would read it to them. So somebody struggling and having you giving too much support and direction, it makes them think, well, I've got it. I know how to do this and you don't. And mm -hmm. it makes them, it it won't, it'll, they'll kick you to the curb and then keep drinking and using. And you have to really accept that in the end, it's really up to them. Mm -hmm. If they want help or not, or if they want to get sober or not, you can't drag somebody across that bridge. You know? Yeah, yeah, they have to be ready themselves for sure, because otherwise it's just kicking and screaming. And we know that for our own experience, it's an active addiction of like your ears really are covered and you're just like, you know, trying to stay in as long as you can, because it's just it's quieting all the darkness within you. So. That's and it can make you feel like a failure as a sober person. I know sometimes when I would be sponsoring people and they wouldn't and they couldn't stay sober, it wouldn't feel good. It would feel like I'm not doing my job. I must suck at being a sponsor. And that might not really be it. If they're just not ready, it doesn't matter how good of a friend, a husband, a brother or sponsor you, you are. Yeah, very much so. So as you know, I run an organization here in Boston called Sober Gay Sunday. Uh, we do, you know, events throughout this throughout the year all over the city. So if you could pick one dream Sober Gay Sunday activity, what would it be? A sober Sunday activity. Wow, that's really that's really challenging. I don't know. I think um I think I think people really need to do outdoorsy type of stuff. I think that would really be something, something really environmental that celebrates uh, the season, especially now, I'm really big on em embracing diversity. And I think doing something over the holidays that really kind of brings everyone's sense of beliefs in unity to the forefront, whether it being flags, designs, costumes, and stuff like that, that kind of radiate um, the holiday season um, and really kind of celebrate cultural diversity. I think that would be a great Sober Sunday activity. Yeah, right now, my primary AA group is Jaywalkers in Boston, mm -hmm. Tuesday night. They have people who travel from all over the state to to come there because it's such a solid group. It's a it really illuminates the importance of cultural diversity because we have it there. There's a high a high end, high level of tolerance, support, and unconditional kindness among the members of the group. And I think too, you know, back in the day, if you relapse, sometimes you might be ostracized. Whereas at Jaywalkers, they like send out a search group and bring you bring you into the fold. And so everybody's kind of treated fairly uh, because of that. When I first joined AA Group 17 years ago, it wasn't honestly that diverse. There really wasn't as much uh, mutual support and kindness for the different uh, elements of cultural and racial diversity. So I think it's really made a big dramatic step forward. So I think to be a part of Jay Walker's and to do bring that into the streets to celebrate diversity, I think that that would be plus to make sure that, hey, you know, no matter where you're from, who you are, how old you are, or your struggles with sobriety, you belong together with us. Yeah. That's great. That's great. That's amazing.
So now that we're kind of wrapping up, where on social media can people find you? I try to uh, I try to limit that so so that I don't spend too much time, you know, on the on, on my phone because that's challenging. I guess Facebook is probably the number one place to to find me. Uh, Twitter, I do have a Twitter account, but I usually follow like political and media people, but I don't really post because mm-hmm. I'm not a I'm not a famous person. What do you care what I think? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, but re- reach out to me on Facebook anytime. I'm very very warm and engaging and, and stuff like that. You can always talk to me. Yeah. Good, I love that. I love that. Yeah, Facebook is a good place to connect for sure. So I just want to thank you very much for being part of the Silvergate Sunday podcast. It was great to have you. Uh, thank you so much. It, it was such a blessing to be here and, and be a part of your group as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Sober Gay Sunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talk and tell me something you're dropping in me on my head with your biggest mistakes. I don't watch your daily drama, fill me in on family traumas, tell me all the medication that you take. Cause life's so short, we blink so fast to not say anything at all.